a story where it starts in chapter 1, gives you the action, and then chapter 2, verse 6, we go right back to the start and we're going to see how they ended up in this situation in the first place. And it's going to shoot right on past the events of chapter 1 into the future and it's going to show us the consequences for what Israel's done. It's huge stuff. And in fact, this passage here tonight is actually going to act as a warning to us. This passage is saying, watch out or you'll end up in exactly the same place that Israel did when they walked away from God. Unless we learn from their mistakes tonight, this is going to be us. So let's pray that we'd hear this warning from God tonight because it's big stuff. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that as we listen to your words tonight, I pray that the mistakes of Israel wouldn't be our mistakes. I pray that we'd listen to the things that, that they did, that we'd pay attention and that instead we'd follow you. Please help us to be obedient to your word uh, and please spare us uh, from, from making the same mistakes that Israel did. Amen. All right. Now, as you look at this passage, as we dig into it, the first clear mistake that Israel make is this. Here it is. They stopped knowing God. So you can look at that. So first of all, when Joshua was around, things were going pretty good. Look at verse 6 again. After Joshua dismissed them, go and take the land and so on. Verse 7, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done. Then verse 8 and 9, Joshua dies again. <laughs> um, see, there was this time when Joshua was around, right, where they were serving God wholeheartedly. They were doing what they should be doing. They remembered their exile from Egypt, how they were in slavery in Egypt, and God, the Lord God, rescued them from Egypt. But then things start to go downhill after Joshua dies. They forgot. They forgot what happened. Look at verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, who knows what that means? They died. They went home to be with their dead parents. After that generation had gone home to be their dead, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. So time goes on. The people who knew God, they, kind of, they, they died off, and this new group comes along. But the problem is, these guys don't remember the past. They don't remember their great rescue, how God saved them. They actually forgot about their God and the things that he'd done. And when it says that they didn't know the Lord, it's not saying that they like didn't know that there was a God or they didn't know something about him at all. It's saying that they didn't know him in relationship. They stopped knowing God. And so there's a really critical connection you guys have to catch there, right? Knowing about the things that God has done in the past, knowing about your rescue, is actually how you know God. You need to remember who God is and what he's done, and so you'll know him. Those two things are hugely connected. And so we... We need to remember our great rescue. We've got to remember the cross and that Jesus came into this world as a man and he died on the cross to save us from our sin. And we've got to remember that that is what our God has done. And so as we continue to do that, we'll continue to know God. See, 
Um, we talk about, we've talked about fat so much this week and last week, and so if you guys weren't on fat, I'm so sorry if you feel left out. But anyway, imagine, imagine if I surveyed everyone who went on fat, right? I surveyed them before and after fat, and I asked them, how well do they, th- do they feel they know God? You know, so I surveyed beforehand, how well do you, do you feel you know God? And then a survey afterwards, how well do you feel you know God? I reckon if I did those two surveys... When you guys came back, I reckon the change would be huge. There would be a huge difference because so many people come home from a week at fat, changed, and they feel like they've deepened in their relationship with God, and, and everyone raves about that kind of stuff. Now, what's that about? Like, why do people always come home from a thing like fat going, man, I feel like I really have got to know God better? Why, what is that? Like, is there just something in the air at Tali? Is there something magical about fat that just makes people know God heaps better? Like, what is that? There's, there's definitely something in the water at Tali. We, we know about that. But, um, but what's going on there? Is fat some magical land that you go to and you get to know God better? It's not. The reason people come home raving about how they've got to know God better at fat is because we spend a week and we go away and we open God's word and we remember our rescue. We remember what Jesus has done. We saturate ourselves in God's word and we get to know our maker as we listen to his words. There's nothing magical about that. It's just getting to know God in his word. And so guys, there's a warning here for us. There's a huge warning here for us. Make sure that you continue to know God. And that means more than just knowing stuff about God. Make sure you know God in relationship with him. I reckon this warning actually works on two levels for us. First of all, it kind of works on the micro level just in all of our lives. Read God's word. Get to know God. We say this all the time. I'm going to say it again though. Read your word every day. Open your Bible. Read it. Get to know God. Come to G-Teams. Read your Bible in a group. Get to know God. Give yourself to that discipline day in, day out, week in, week out, because it's the best thing that you can actually do to make sure you don't make the same mistakes that Israel made. But there's a second thing that I desperately want all of us here to get tonight, because this is big. Make sure that the next generation of EV youth knows God too. See, Israel's problem, Israel's forgetting of God, happened over a long period of time. It didn't just happen over the night. And they were like, God who? I don't know. Like it, the generation died off and the next generation grew up and they didn't know God. Now when that happens, I mean, when someone doesn't know God like that, whose fault is that? Ultimately, it's up to individuals to make sure that they know God. But the first generation should have told the second generation about God. Now, last week, Hazy told us about the, the, the story of EV Youth. If you were here, he told us the history, where we've come from in EV Youth. And it was a good story. It's pretty exciting to see what God's done among us, right? And under God, who knows what might happen to EV Youth in the future? Who knows? Maybe in the future, EV Youth might be 600 young people every Friday night gathering here, right? All that doesn't mean a thing if those 600 people don't know their God and know Jesus as their rescuer. It doesn't matter at all 
unless we remember the gospel and unless the next generation is taught the gospel. The Christians here tonight and not your leaders, you are the people who will decide what EV youth looks like in five years' time. Your leaders are going to get old and they're going to get married and have kids and do old people stuff or whatever, stay home on a Friday night and knit. And you guys, the Christians here tonight, the youth group Christians here tonight, are the people who are going to decide what EV youth looks like in five years' time. In fact, many of you guys are already doing this. If you teach EV kids on a, fr- on a, on a weekend, you're, you're telling the future EV youth the gospel. If you neglect to do that and you do that badly, you're failing to teach the future, the, the future generation the gospel. You guys are doing that as we do disciple time over there and you talk to the juniors. It's already happening. Guys, this one is on you. What will either youth look like in five years' time? Will we still know the gospel? That's entirely up to you guys. I pray that either youth wouldn't change and that, that it would be full of people who know God and know Jesus as their rescuer. So they stop knowing God. There's a first mistake that they made. There's a second mistake, though, and it comes straight after it, verses 11 and 12. They started listening to the world around them. Stop listening to God, started listening to the world around them. See, check out verses 11 and 12. Then the Israelites did evil in the lives of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because of all the stuff they did. Now, what's the deal with that? How does Israel end up worshipping other gods? Like, how does that happen? Like, man, I've been to Thailand, right, as a tourist, and I saw a lot of Buddhist temples, but at no point along my time in Thailand did I suddenly find myself in a Buddhist temple worshipping Buddha and just going, whoa, hang on, I worship Jesus, not Buddha. How did I get here? I don't know what I'm doing. I lost concentration, accidentally worshipped another god. Like, that didn't happen to me in Thailand, right? How does Israel find themselves suddenly worshipping these other gods? How does that happen? Do you ever read the Bible and go, what the heck? Just remember which one's God and you've got it covered, Israel. Well, <laughs> well let, me, let me tell you a little bit about, um, about what it would have been like in the land and tell you about the Baals and the Ashtaroths, who were the gods in the land that they moved into. See, worshipping Baal and the Ashtaroths was about two things, basically. It was about sex and agriculture. That's what it was about. It was about planting stuff and agriculture. So the idea was that... <laughs> What a, oh, man. Uh. All right. It was about planning stuff and sex, those two things. Wow. All right. Okay, bring it back together, bring it back together. Here's how it worked for them, right? Bring it back together. Basically, it was all about... Um, we're going to lose it again on this one, but it was about actually trying to get this male god Baal to get it on with the female gods, the Ashtaroths. And it, when that happened, the rains would come and that means the plants would grow. And so you'd have heaps of crops and you'd have heaps of food to eat. And so the whole point was to, that was how they worshipped Baal and the Ashtaroths. That was a big part of it. It was that they'd go to the temple and they would actually, um, they'd, they'd 
they'd see like temple prostitutes and stuff like that and they'd make sacrifices and all of this was to try and kind of coerce these male and female gods into getting it on and then the rains would come and so the plants would grow and that's what it was all about. Now imagine you're Israel, right? You move into this land and when you move in, you don't actually get rid of all the people who lived in the land. You, you let them stay and they live among you and, you and they marry your sons and your daughters. And the big thing that matters to you now as a person who's moved into this land is that you need plants to grow. You need plants to grow so you can have crops, so you can have food, so you can get by. And you can kind of imagine that you're talking to the people around you. You're talking to your son-in-law. You're talking to the guy who lives across the valley. And, and they're saying things like, yeah... Your God seems like he must be a pretty good guy. I heard that he brought you out of Egypt and stuff. That's pretty good. But if you want to make it in this land, you've got to please the Baals and the Ashtaroths. You've got to get them on your side because you need rain, because you need plants. And so come along to one of our temple services next week. They're pretty cool. You might have a bit of fun. Come along and worship Baal with me. And so suddenly, Israel find themselves falling into worshipping these other gods. Now, I wonder if we were in their shoes, in that context, in that culture, would we do any better? In fact, as an application, in our culture and in our context, do we do any better? There are lots of different gods that the world around us will tell us we should worship instead of the real God. And I'm not talking about go and worship Buddha. Some people might tell you to do that. But that's not what I'm talking about. Two big examples of gods that the culture directly around us will tell us to worship time and time again. They won't use those words, but they'll tell us to worship sex and they'll tell us to worship money. Treat those things as God, not God. See, first of all, sex Man, every day at school and on TV and on the net and wherever else, you guys will get bombarded with the message that boys will be boys, they'll just do what boys do, and that girls, well, they should have fun as well and they should explore their sexuality as a part of them, I don't know what it's a part of, but, you know, everyone should just be having a bit of fun. And pornography, man, that's just normal. That's just the normal teenage experience. Everyone does it. It's just a part of growing up. And so why be so uptight about it? And you can't even go on Facebook without having this kind of rubbish, pornography, rammed down your face. It's everywhere. There's one message that our culture sends us about sex. And then there's sex, uh, sex before marriage. How does the world pitch that one at you? My guess is you, you don't have many friends who are like, come on, let's go do heroin and see hookers. I don't think that's going on for you guys, right? <laughs> you might have some friends who are saying that to you, but I don't think that's what it looks like. It's a lot more subtle than that. It seems a lot more normal. Instead, you'll hear things like this. Are you really going to get married before you have sex? Are you really going to wait that long? What if when you get married, you're not very sexually compatible with the person that you're married? Then you'll be stuck. People will say stuff like, wouldn't it be better to get a bit of experience with sex with some people that you don't really care about that much so that when you find the person that you love, well, then it's going to be really good for you then. 
you'll be really good at it by then, so why not get some experience? And they'll always finish off these kind of comments with, but of course, you should do what you think is right, and it's really noble of you to, to wait till marriage. Good on you, but I'm not doing that. And, and that's what people will say. I had a Christian girlfriend um, quite a while ago now, years ago, whose non-Christian parents were freaking out about the possibility of her getting married without having sex with her boyfriend and without living with her boyfriend first. That was what they thought of it. They made her feel like she was naive and young and stupid for thinking that way. What about money? What's the message of the world when it comes to money? We live in a world that subtly tells us that money should be our God. See, God says about himself, trust me, rely on me, and let that be your security. Our culture says money will provide you with everything you need. Money will make you secure. God says, let your joy be in me. Let me be the thing that brings you joy. Our culture says if you have enough money, you will be able to buy stuff that will bring you all the joy you want. There's an entire advertising industry that's built around the idea of trying to convince you to buy things that you're not yet persuaded you actually need. That's what it is. Every new video game trailer, every new ad that Apple ever makes, every movie trailer is another attempt to tell you this is something you have to have to convince you of that. How often do all of us watch trailers for a new product or a new thing that's coming out and we say, man, when that comes out, I've got to have that. (laughs) When that movie or that whatever... I've got to have one of those. We get sucked in because we want to get sucked in because that's what our culture loves, being sold another thing that we've got to buy. We seek our joy and our comfort in our security in money and the stuff that it buys us. And guys, this is a really tough one to navigate wisely. It really is. Because the thing is, right, hear me say this clearly, Money's not evil. Buying stuff's not evil. Going to see a new movie or buying a new computer or whatever it is that you buy, those things aren't evil. But the problem is in our culture, we've got all these voices around us saying you need more and you need more and you need more and serve me, worship me, do this, do this, do this. And and we live in a culture where greed isn't called greed, it's just called normal. We just say everyone does this, everyone does this with their money. That's just normal, but it's greed, And so it's hard to walk that line and not get sucked in and find ourselves worshipping money. It's much more subtle than any other God that our culture will hold up as a thing to worship. Now maybe for you, it isn't actually any of those things. Maybe sex or money isn't the thing that you're tempted to worship, but I guarantee there's something other than God. Maybe for you, it's sport. Maybe for you, it's spending all your time worrying about how good you look. Maybe for you, it's, just, it's your friends, living for your friends, worshipping friendship. Maybe it's just having fun. Whatever you find fun, that's what you live for, that's your God. There are so many different things that our world will tell us we should treat as our God. And so just like Israel, we're in serious grave danger. 
We're in danger of forgetting our God and ceasing to know him. And we're in danger of finding other things to worship instead of him. Now, there's two big reasons why Israel ended up in the place that they did in chapter 2, verse 4, where they're weeping out loud because of this broken relationship with God. There's one more thing. There's, there's another thing I want you guys to see in this passage, though, about how this all works. As we read on, you're going to see the actual consequences of this kind of spiral out of control of Israel. In the future, past the events of chapter 1, here's what you'll see. Israel got caught in a downward spiral in sin. That's what happened for them. Looking at verses 16 to 19, you'll see it right there. You'll see that Israel gets caught in sin's downward spiral. Uh, Look at verse 16. And the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. So God saves them. Yet they would not listen to these judges, but they prostituted themselves to other God and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned away from the way which their fathers had walked in the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, um, he, was with, he was with the judge and he saved them out of the hands of the enemies as long as they lived and so on and so on. Verse 19, But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. You see that pattern? This is the pattern that the entire book of Judges repeats time and time again. Here's the pattern. You guys need to know this. This is how you understand the whole book. Look it up on the screen. Here's the five-step pattern that happens again and again and again. Israel's sin. God brings judgment somehow. They cry out to God, not because they're sorry and they repent and just because they don't like the situation, they cry out. God saves them. And they sin all over again, and the cycle starts again. Verse 19 says that they follow God while a particular judge is alive, but once that judge is gone, well, they go back right to it. They go back to their sin time and time again because they love their sin. Can you guys see how dangerous sin is? Do you get the picture? so dangerous it catches people it entraps them and it doesn't catch them against their will it actually catches them because they fall in love with it they want to stay there and so they stay there and they cycle round and round again this pattern of sin god saves and they just head straight back to it again shows us that there's something hugely deeply wrong with all people Something's deeply broken in all of us. There's a movie coming out called The Purge, right? Um, I heard about it this week. And the movie itself looks pretty horrible. I'm not suggesting you guys go see the movie. But the idea behind this movie is a pretty interesting one. I'll tell you the basic idea of the movie. In the future, the movie says, crime is at an all-time low. No one's committing crime because once a year they have this thing called The Purge where for 12 hours overnight, once a year, crime is perfectly legal. So there's no police, no emergency services. It's legal to do whatever you want for that 12 hours. And so society just goes crazy for that 12 hours. They go nuts. They murder each other and attack each other and rob each other, and they just go crazy for 12 hours, and they purge the evil out of their system. They get it all out of them, 
and then they're good for the rest of the year. Here's the problem, though. <laughs> it's an interesting idea, but that is exactly the opposite of how sin actually works. It's the exact opposite. See, when we sin, it's not like we get out of our system and go, well, that's good. I guess I don't really need to sin anymore because I've sinned my quota for the year. That's not how it works. Sin is addictive. And so when we give into it, when we let it in and when we indulge in it, we more and more spiral down into this pattern of sin because we fall more and more in love with our sin. Sin traps us in this terrible way. And so, guys, can I just warn you tonight, if you're a person who might have dabbled in Christian stuff or maybe hasn't at all, but you're kind of thinking about Jesus and all that kind of stuff, if your plan is to basically put it off, put off Jesus and have a bit of fun in life first, and then one day when you're older and you're bored and you've had a bit of fun, then deal with Jesus, if that's your plan, what gives you any reason to think that when you're older and you've indulged and, and thrown yourself into sin, what gives you any reason to think that at that point you'll want to come back? All you're doing is falling more and more in love with sin. I've seen so many young people make that mistake of saying, I'll deal with this Jesus stuff when I'm older. I just want to have a little bit of fun first. Then I'll get right back on this Jesus stuff and sort myself out with God. And there is no reason to think you'll come back. Hear the warning tonight. Watch out for sin. Now, the problem is, though, my guess is in a room full of people this many, there's a whole bunch of us here tonight who've actually already messed up pretty big time. Maybe you don't know much about God, but tonight you've heard enough to go, yeah, actually, I'm, I've, I've messed up big time. Maybe you know a fair bit about this stuff. You should know better but you've basically been living, ignoring God and, and throwing yourself into sin. On one level or another, all of us have done this to some extent. Now tonight, we've answered the question of how did we get here? Like, how did this happen? How did this, we're in this sin thing. How did we get here? We've answered that question, but as a, as a worthwhile question left to answer. And how do we get out of here? How do we get out of this sin problem? And the answer to that question is, is an answer that I reckon most people don't expect. So we get ourselves into this problem by the things that we do, the mistakes that we make. The way to get out of this problem, well, it's not about things that we do. We can't get out ourselves. We can't save ourselves. Here's the last point from this passage tonight. The way out of this problem is the incredible undeserved grace of God. So check out the way verses 14 to 16 read. Verses 14 and 15, if you look at them, God's judging them, he's smashing them for their sin, and you expect it to say in like verse 16, then they learnt their lesson and so they turned back to God and God saved them. <laughs> but it doesn't say that. God's smashing them and then God hears them in their pain and he just intervenes. They don't turn over a new leaf or sort themselves out or stop doing the wrong thing. He sees their pain and he intervenes. And then verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of these raiders, the, the people who were attacking them. God sees their problem and their pain. 
and in incredible grace, he intervenes. Now, those judges that God sent in this book, they offered a kind of temporary relief to Israel's problem of sin. In a similar way, but in a much bigger and much more permanent way, God has done something huge for us. Check out these verses up on the screen from the New Testament, Romans chapter 5. Incredible verses. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we were God's enemies, before we'd done anything to deserve any sort of a rescue, Jesus died for us. That is astounding. That is the solution. That is the ultimate solution to sin. It's not about what you do. It's about what God has already done in the person Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin and fix our relationship with God. And if you want that to be a fixed relationship for you, then all we need to do is put our trust in him. You don't make yourself good. You don't fix yourself up. You don't be so sorry that God goes good on you. You're pretty good now. No, you just trust in Jesus who died to pay for your sin, and it's done. That is amazing. That is the solution. And so, guys, can I encourage you to do that tonight? If you're a Christian, the most important thing, sure, hear the warnings to Israel here. Run from sin, but most importantly, when you find yourself in sin time and time again, keep trusting Jesus. If you're not a Christian, but you've understood what it means to be a Christian tonight, that you're someone who trusts Jesus and makes him your king who runs your life, then put your trust in Jesus tonight. That is the only way to solve this problem. If you want to do that tonight, come chat to me. I'd love to talk you through what to do. It's as simple as putting your trust in Jesus. Come find me if you want to talk about that tonight. Let's pray, though, because this is awesome news. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that tonight we would hear the warning that you have for us in in the history of, of Israel and their mistakes. Father, please help us never to forget the gospel. Help us never to stop knowing you. Lord, please help us to not listen to this world when it tells us to worship anything other than you. Please forgive us for the times when we stuff up in these areas. And Lord, thank you that in Jesus we're completely rescued from sin and its consequences. Amen. All right, guys, um, that's this part of the night where we look at the Bible together. Now, um, I need to check the time.